It was probably close to 20 years ago. I was sitting in a meeting with a group of people. I was actually sitting beside a guy named Al who I had known about, but Al and I had never met. And we got chatting. We were kind of, you know, getting to know each other a little bit. And Al, he suddenly looks at me. He says, he says Mike, he said, um, somebody told me you got your undergrad degree in like science or something. What, what's your undergrad in? And I said, well, Al, I said, I have an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering from the University of Waterloo. And he said, oh, is that right? He said, um, if you don't mind me asking, he said, what, what you pay for a degree like that? Like, what, $75,000, $100,000, something like that? I said, I, something in that ballpark. And he looks at me and he says, what does it feel like to pay $100,000 for something you're never going to use? Which is a rather disconcerting question because I was already working at the church at the time. But I had a sharp answer. He, so he, he said, what do you, you know, you pay $100,000 for something you're going to use. And I said, you know what, Al? I said, I use my engineering degree every single day. Because engineering is nothing other than a, a problem-solving mindset. And I said, I don't think there's anywhere in the world, the church included, that doesn't need people who can solve problems. Now, what I didn't say to Al was, I'm fine with paying $100,000 for a degree that I'm never going to use because one of the things I learned during the course of studying for that degree was that I'm a terrible engineer. <laughs> I, I was good in class. Like, I, I got it. I understood the material. I got good grades. I was good in the lab. I liked the experiment. I liked working with lab partners, whatever. But as a part of my co-op work terms, when you'd go out in the field and actually do, like, real engineering, that, that's where I legitimately discovered that I am a terrible engineer. Terrible. My friends were not all like me. Put up your hand. Now, I won't be able to see you, but put up your hand if you have a mobile device with a camera that was not made by Apple. So like Samsung, Galaxy, whatever. Like, put up your hand. Now, keep them up, and I want you to look around the room in the room where you are. These are the people who own mobile devices with cameras not made by Apple. I have a friend who told me a couple of years ago, he was in class with me in Waterloo. If you own an Apple device with a camera or a non-Apple device with a camera, there's an 80% chance that my friend Mike designed the camera in your device. Turns out there's like six or seven engineers in the whole world who design mobile camera systems and Mike was one of them. And that is not me. And that was never ever, ever going to be me. Because as much as I could think like an engineer, I was an engineer in my mind. As much as I could feel like an engineer, I was an engineer in my heart. I never actually was an engineer. And the way you could tell is I, I never actually did engineering. And I think about that example this week because there's a part of me that thinks that that is exactly the concern that James has for the people that he is writing when it comes to their life of faith. Throughout this series, we've been talking about saving faith. About saving faith from the convincing imposters to faith. Two weeks ago, we talked about saving faith from the cheap talkers, people who can talk a good game, who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And yet, as you listen to their words, which is revealing what's actually in their heart, what you're discovering is that their words are not leading to a life that looks a lot like Jesus. Last week, 
Jeff led us through a passage about saving faith from the country clubbers. People who profess to have a faith in Jesus Christ and yet they treat with favoritism people who are rich and with privilege, people who are like them or who make them comfortable or people who they think they can get something from and they judge the poor and, and vulnerable and discriminate against them instead of loving everybody indiscriminately. And neither of those kinds of people are people who have a genuine faith. Well, this morning, as we turn to James chapter 2, verse 14, we're looking at the third kind of imposter that we're saving faith from, and it's the, the pew sitter. The person who, on the surface and on the outside, looks like they're living a robust life of faith when they actually genuinely aren't. This is what James says in James chapter 2, verse 14, he asks two questions, and he expects that the answer to both of these questions will be no. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? And the answer is, it's no good. Second question, can this kind of faith save them? And the answer is, no, it can't. James is talking about a person who has faith. What he means, he means what we mean when we talk about people who are practicing their religion. People who are active in the activities of faith. People who go to church and who are part of a church community and who maybe read their Bible and they pray with frequency. and Just people who do all sorts of faith things and who would claim to have a faith. But he says they they are doing all these faith things and claim to have a faith, but they have no deeds. What does James mean by deeds? Well, he means exactly what Jeff told us last week that he means. He means obedience to the royal law of God, which is love your neighbor as yourself, especially the poorest and most vulnerable people in your community. James is saying, if you're the kind of person who is participating in the outward practices of faith, you're a religious person, but you are not practicing love for the poorest, most vulnerable people in the community, your faith is no good and it cannot save you. Now, you know that this is exactly what James is talking about by the example that he gives in verse 15. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? James says, I want you to imagine something, but I think he's suggesting that they imagine something that actually the kind of thing that has happened in their community, but a more extreme version. He says, I want you to imagine that somebody who's a part of your community is living in the desperate need and the deep shame of poverty. He says they're naked, is literally what the Greek text says, they're naked, but he doesn't mean that they're naked, like don't start imagining people who are naked. He just means that they have inadequate clothing. They don't have the kind of clothing they need to be adequate to the circumstances they're facing. So 
you know, on December 16th, they don't have a winter coat. They don't have boots. They don't have warm mittens. They don't have a a toque. They, They don't have the clothing that they need to help them survive the circumstances that they're living in. He says, I want you to imagine that they're without daily food. They don't have enough money to eat every single day. They sometimes have to choose between rent and groceries. They're the kind of parent who sits back to wait until the kids are finished eating to see whether there will be enough food for them as well. They're chronically hungry and undernourished. James says, I want you to imagine what it would be like to have such a person as a part of your community. And I think in our community, we don't really have to imagine. And he says, now I want you to imagine that you come across this person in the community and your response to their desperate need is this. You look at them and you say, go in peace. Interesting that the first word is go and not come. I think often with people who are living in desperate poverty, it makes us uncomfortable and we wish that they could just go out of sight, out of mind, right? I I don't have to be uncomfortable if I'm not in your presence, right? But they say, go in peace. And that's actually a religious greeting. It's suggesting go with the peace of God in your life. In fact, when he says, keep warm and well-fed, what the, the implication is, go with the blessing of God in your life. May God keep you warm and may God fill your stomach with rich and delicious food. Because he says, heaven knows I don't plan to do either of those things. He says, you, you supply these pious, warm well wishes And then even though you have the resources, you don't do anything about it. He says, what good is that? And the answer is none. He says, your show of concern is a joke. And the person who reacts like that, James goes on to say, their faith is also somewhat of a joke. He says in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. He says, if you're the kind of person whose faith is this big outward show, and you're filled with all these pious words and these religious activities but in the in the core of your life if somebody actually scrutinizes what you do with your life what they discover is that you you genuinely do not do anything to serve the poorest and most vulnerable people among you James says your faith without that kind of action is dead it's it's just not real It's nothing. There's nothing to it. That's that's quite a heavy thing to say. James knows it and 
you know it and I know it as a preacher and I know it as a follower of Jesus. And James knows that there are people in the community that he's writing to who are going to object to the idea that without these kinds of loving service to the poor and the vulnerable, those kinds of deeds, that their faith is actually nothing and worthless and dead and it doesn't save them. He knows that people are going to push back against that. And he anticipates their objections. He says in verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And James responds by saying, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. James anticipates, somebody's going to say, no, hold on, James. Faith and deeds are actually two separate things. Because I know some people, they're really good at the faith thing, right? They attend church a lot and they read their Bible. They know their Bible inside out and they pray all the time and they pray these really eloquent prayers and they lead a life group and they, they could teach theology. They could tell you all about God and whatever. They, they're, just, they're, they're really amazing with the faith thing. And I know other people who are really amazing at living a life of love and especially loving service to the poor and the vulnerable. They, uh, you know, they may not attend that often and they may not know what they believe as deeply and they may not read their Bible that much or whatever. But man, do they love people. Do they know how to serve the poor? Do they know how to fight for those who can't fight for themselves? They advocate on behalf of the victims. They protest injustice. They're just, they're just amazing at living out that part of what it means to live in a relationship with God. James, faith and works are just two separate things. And some people have one and other people have the other. And you know what? In the modern church, we get into a bit of this kind of thinking as well. We misread verses like the one that says, for it is by faith, by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. This is not of works so that no one can boast. And we say, see, faith, having a saving faith, being saved is something that God just does for us when we respond in faith. And it doesn't have anything to do with how we live. Our faith and our works are two separate things. James says, are they now? He says, let's do a little thought experiment. He says, you show me your faith without your deeds. He says, I, I, I want you to do this to me. He says, I want you to demonstrate your faith to me, prove your faith to me, making absolutely no reference to things that you do. How would you prove your faith without making reference to anything that you do? Well, you, you can't do it, right? It's like me saying to you, okay, prove to me that you love your parents. Prove to me that you love your friends. Prove to me that you love your partner, but do not in any way refer to anything that you do. Well, you, you can't do it. It's impossible, right? You can, you can feel a deep sense of love for the loved ones in your life, but, but you cannot actually love them unless you do something about it, right? Love is something that's visible, 
It starts with an internal reality, but it's something that is out in the open that people can see. We have a a saying, a phrase that describes this in our culture. If you're with someone right now who says that they love you, but they don't do any of the loving things in your life, what we say in our culture is they're just not that into you. The love isn't real. They don't actually love you. James says the same is true of faith. You can say all day that you have faith as an internal reality, but if it never expresses itself in an external reality, guess what? Your faith isn't real. There's a second objection. Because he knows that people are going to say, no, 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 because my faith is about what I believe and I believe all the right things. He says in verse 19, you believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. When James says you believe that there's one God, that is the most basic fundamental belief in the Bible. It's what separates the the Jews and the Christians from everybody else in the ancient world who all believed that there was multiple gods. It was something that they would pray three times a day as an act of devotion to God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one true God. And what these people are arguing is, no, no, my faith is rooted in what I believe. And I believe all the right things. I believe the right things about Jesus. And I believe the right things about sin. And I believe the right things about the cross and about resurrection and about heaven and hell and about the Bible and about creation and evolution and whatever. I I have the right beliefs. We make this argument that our faith is about what we believe. We reduce faith to a a mental activity of believing certain things. And it's not right. James has said in in chapter one, the kinds of people who reduce faith to something they believe are the kind of people who become arrogantly opinionated and arrogantly contentious. When you identify your faith with only with what you believe, well then what you believe has to matter the most and you have to fight for it against anybody who disagrees with you. And this is why we split churches and end relationships and start new denominations because I'm right and you're wrong and I can't stand to be in relationship with somebody whose faith is wrong. James says it doesn't doesn't work that way. Your faith is not synonymous with what you believe. He, He says truth is important. He says good, I'm glad you believe the right things. It's important to know what we believe and to root our beliefs deeply in the Bible and in the community discerning what the scripture says as we're all led together by the Holy Spirit. And truth matters a lot. But believing the right truths doesn't save anybody. James says even the demons believe the right truths. They're the best theologians out there. They live in the spiritual world. They know exactly what happens. And it causes them to shudder because they know that despite the fact that they believe all the right things, they're still going to receive the judgment of God. Their beliefs haven't saved them. Because faith isn't about what you believe. 
It's about how your faith actualizes itself in a life of love, especially a life of loving service for the poor and the vulnerable. That's how you know that a faith is real. He says, do you want me to prove it? He says, verse 20, you foolish person. He says, do you want proof that faith without deeds is useless? He says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. James reaches back to a story from the Bible, from the earliest chapters of the Bible about Abraham, who became the father of the nation of Israel. And he reminds his readers of a time when God had come to Abraham and had said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac on the altar. Now, setting aside the perplexing question of child sacrifice and why God would command such a heinous thing, that's a conversation for another day. Abraham, it says in the scriptures, believed God. And this command was confusing for Abraham because on the one hand, this was completely out of character for God who had never commanded anything like this before. And on the other hand, it was out of, it was confusing given the circumstances that God had promised Abraham that his one and only son Isaac would be the person through whom God would raise up the nation of Israel as Abraham's descendants. How could that happen if Abraham sacrificed Isaac and yet Abraham fully believed that God had commanded him to sacrifice Isaac? So here's what Abraham believed, two contradictory things. He believed that Isaac was going to be the one through whom God gave him a nation full of descendants. And he believed that God had commanded him to sacrifice Isaac. And in faith that God could still do this and use Isaac to create a nation of descendants, even though Abraham did this and obeyed God and sacrificed Isaac, Abraham chose to make the costly act of obedience to sacrifice his son. Now God intervened and Abraham didn't have to do it. But James says, do you see how Abraham's faith, what he believed was being lived out in what he did? His faith and his actions were working together. He says his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. James says, you see what it is? Abraham had beliefs. He had faith as an internal reality. But when he obeyed God in this costly way to sacrifice Isaac, his faith was actualized by his actions. It was realized. It was made real by the choices that he made. Until Abraham made that choice, his faith wasn't actualized. Right? I can say all day and all night that I have faith in my parachute, but that faith is not actualized until I jump out of the airplane. It's only when I jump out of the airplane that my faith is real. 
right? If I refused to jump out of the airplane, guess what? I never had real faith in my parachute. That's what he's saying. It's only the kind of faith that will become actualized, that will become completed, that will become fulfilled in our actions and especially our loving service of the poor and the vulnerable. That's when you know that faith is real. He gives another example. He says in verse 25, another biblical example, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. This is another story from ancient Israel of a time when God was, uh, so the story goes, using the leadership of a man named Joshua to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land, which was called Canaan, now it's the land of Israel. And God had commanded Joshua to lead the nation in and they were going to drive out the nations before them and occupy their land. Now, setting aside the difficult question of genocide and colonialism and the question of why God would command such a heinous thing, that's a conversation for another day. Joshua sent two spies into the land of Canaan and they ended up spending the night at a cheap motel run by a prostitute named Rahab who said to them in the middle of the night, I believe that your God is the high God. He's the great God. Your God is going to defeat our gods and your army is going to defeat our our army. And your God is the only God that should be worshipped and feared and obeyed. And so when you invade and when you defeat us, please spare me and my family. Now the civic officials had heard a rumor that these two spies were staying at the Rahab Inn and so they sent the police to go and fetch them and Rahab answers the door and she lies to the police and she says oh they went that away and the police take off that way and then she had hidden the spies on the roof and she says the spies you go that way and they went that way and the story goes that Israel invaded the city of Jericho where Rahab lived And they spared Rahab's life because of her faith, because of what she did for the spies. And she became a part of Israel. And Jewish legend is that she married Joshua and became the matriarch of a family that produced some of the greatest prophets in Israel's history, including Jesus. Rahab believed certain things were true about God. And those beliefs translated into sacrificial action where she put everything about the life of her family on the line to provide generous hospitality to these vulnerable people to protect them from the authorities, to fight for those who couldn't fight for themselves. And because her faith translated into action, it was actualized. She and Abraham were both called righteous. Which means they were right with God. They were living in right relationship with him because the things they believed became actualized in their behavior. That's what James is saying. We can think about it this way. A number of years ago, there was a book that came out and I read it and I think a number of people have heard about it. I read it called The Five Love Languages. Written by a pastor named Gary Chapman, who said that each of us give and receive love in different ways. Some of us through words of affirmation. Some of us by spending quality time, which is usually quantity time. Some of us by 
giving and receiving gifts. Some of us by physical touch, a hug or whatever, and some of us by um, acts of service. And Chapman said, each of us has a primary way or two that we prefer to give and receive love. And for relationships to work, we have to understand what the other people's love language are and to treat them the way they need to be treated and so on. But the whole point is that love is only full. Love is only complete and fulfilled when all five love languages are present. That's when love has been actualized. And I think that's what James is saying about God. You can love God, have faith in him. You can, you can love God with words of affirmation and confess all sorts of right beliefs and pray without ceasing, as the Bible says, and sing songs of praise and worship. You can spend quality time with God, attending worship faithfully and morning and evening prayer and Bible reading and listening to podcasts and singing worship songs in your car. You can... You can give and receive gifts from God. Your time, talents, and treasures given to the community. You can love God with physical touch. You can't touch God, but loving people in the community with an arm around the shoulder and a handshake and a hug and all of what that communicates. But until your love, your loving faith includes acts of loving service, in particular to the poor and the vulnerable, your love is not complete. It's not full it's not fulfilled it has not been fully actualized that's what James has been driving at in this whole series the first week he says the only religion that God knows how to recognize is a religion that cares for orphans and widows the poor and the vulnerable Last week, Jeff pointed out, followers of Jesus never show favoritism. They don't discriminate in how they distribute love. They love everybody the same, making extra effort to love the poor and the vulnerable to make sure that they're being loved. Here he says, how did Abraham and Rahab actualize their faith? They actualized it through sacrificial obedience, in particular, caring for the poor and the vulnerable and fighting for those who couldn't fight for themselves. This has been James' point the whole time. He summarizes it in verse 26. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He says, you know how your body has a soul? (laughs) And if you separate your body from the soul, you're no longer a person. Uh, You're actually just a corpse. He says, it's the same with your faith. If you have a faith, a body of faith, and you separate from it the soul of loving acts of service for the poor and the vulnerable. Your faith is not a living faith. It's a corpse. In essence, what James says is that faith that doesn't work for the poor and the vulnerable, faith that doesn't work, just doesn't work. Which is why I'm thankful that we're thinking about this right at this time of year. In the moment that we remember that none of us has the ability to live the kind of life that James is calling us to, which God knew and in his love is precisely the reason why God sent Jesus into the world to be the savior. 
not just to forgive us for all of the ways that we've failed to be the person that Jesus through James is calling us to be, not just to be an example of the kind of person God has created us to be, though of course both those things are true, but to be the one who rescues us from the people that we are by the power of the Holy Spirit to make us into the people who give off the fragrance of Jesus to the world. May we this Christmas season not just celebrate the love of God that has caused Jesus to come. May we celebrate that because the love of God that has sent Jesus into the world, that we can actually come and become the people that he's created us to be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we don't want to live a half of faith. We don't want to live a dead faith. We don't want to live a faith that James calls useless, ineffective, dead, and unable to save. We want to live the kind of faith that James says is empowered and fulfilled and completed and put on display and made whole by the ways that you have taught us to love the poorest and most vulnerable among us with all of our heart, with as much as we love ourselves. Would you, by the power of Jesus in the Holy Spirit, recreate us into the kinds of people whose faith is genuinely alive because only a faith that works really works. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.